This is the Oasis Church Podcast. We're located in Athens, Ohio, and we use this podcast feed to primarily post the messages from our Sunday morning church gatherings. If you enjoy this message or if you'd like to know more about Oasis Church, please reach out to us at oasisathens at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We look forward to hearing from you, and we hope that you enjoy this message from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. Well, what happens after Christmas? Let's find out. <laughs> Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 40 is where we're going to be today. We're going to walk through this next section of Scripture, which is the next event. And, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, works, if it works better for the video that way. Oh, the, the, the sun from behind? We have backlighting. So, well, what would have happened on this occasion? Uh, what we're about to read today. We're just going to kind of walk through it here, um, verse by verse, a little bit. But what would have happened, and what you're about to see, is Mary and Joseph are bringing Jesus as a young baby boy, perhaps roughly six weeks or so of age, between 33, right around 33 days is about when when we know that some of the purification of the the women who would have a child would take place. They had all these rituals and things like that that they would do through the Old Testament ceremonial law. But they were about six weeks later after Jesus' birth, bringing him back to the temple to be dedicated. So they most likely would have gone back to their hometown of Nazareth um, before going into the temple. And I know that sometimes when you're reading the Christmas story and the different accounts, especially as you compare Matthew and Luke, you might be wondering, hey, when are we going to talk about those wise men, right? Those three, the ones we sing about, we three kings of Orient are, where, where, where do they show up? Well, Luke doesn't necessarily focus on those guys very much. Luke goes right into what, what happened with Jesus. And, and I'm guessing it's because most of his account is is from Mary herself. As he would sit down and t- he would have sat down and talked with Mary, Joseph would have been dead by the time Luke had done this investigation. And so he got his information from Mary, and Mary probably focused on a few different things than, jo- than Joseph did. She may not have mentioned the fact that they um, had to go into Egypt for a while and, and, and flee, or maybe she did, and Luke just didn't feel the need to put it in since Matthew talked about that. Well, Matthew talks about them going to Egypt, and the reason why they do that is because Herod had sent these wise men from the from the east to go and find the baby that he said was going to be born in Bethlehem because he had, he had researched from some scholars that that's where the Messiah was supposed to be born, and, and Herod was really concerned about, about this child. And so we don't know how much time is passing, right, between in all these events. We do know that Herod ordered the death of all the baby boys two years old and under um, and at that time, right around that time in the book of Matthew we see. So it's a good chance that there were a lot of other things taking place, that it wasn't just like Jesus was born, they stayed there in the manger, they stayed there in the stable for a long, you know, for all, the whole time and everyone came to that one place. The shepherds we know did, they brought animals there and people probably gathered around but there's a good chance that the wise men found him after they had already gone back home for a bit and come back and all that. Well this is an occasion where they went back home and they're traveling again from Nazareth back into Jerusalem. So that's about 140 miles or so just to get uh, an idea here. And so it would have taken roughly a week or so for them to walk back to Jerusalem, to the temple, to dedicate this child to God. This is a seriously devoted family. This is a couple 
who greatly loves God. This is a this is a couple that's living in Nazareth, some 140 miles away in a small little town of 50 to 100 people or so. They love God. They, they, they're simple, just peasant people, but they're devoted to Yahweh, their God. They're devoted to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the one that they had grown up learning about. And they're devoted to the scriptures and to what the scriptures say to do. And so when their son is born, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, as we know, they do according to the custom of the law of the Old Testament that was brought down to them through the law of Moses. And they bring up Jesus to the temple for dedication. Mary goes for ceremonial cleansing and Jesus goes to, to, to that for them to dedicate this baby. And so we're going to begin reading in verse 22. As Luke writes this, and when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present to the Lord. Now verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So indeed, Jesus is Mary's firstborn son. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. Now, as we read the totality of the Gospel of Luke, we hear this phrase mentioned on five different occasions. You're going to hear it here in, this, in the reading that we're talking about today, that we're getting ready to read now. This phrase is, they did according to what is said in the law of God. They did according to what is said in the law of God. And this just shows us, remember, this is showing you the devout nature of Mary and Joseph. These are two people who want to follow the scriptures. They're you know, going to the temple. It would have been a magnificent event for these two people. Their town is perhaps a little small, 100 or so people town, very different way of living and growing up and learning about things and experiencing the world. Jerusalem would have been over a, a, a hundred, a hundred and some thousand people. And so this is a simple young couple. Mary has just given birth to God, God incarnate, and she's carrying him in her arms as his mother in obedience to the scriptures because she loves God and she believes these scriptures. And it's just got to be a surreal thing for her to be doing this. And this statement says that she, you know, that she did according to the law of the Lord. It's articulated five times by Luke to repeatedly, I think, and emphatically and clearly teach us that his mother, Jesus' mother, and his adoptive father, Joseph, they love God. And I think this is a really good, it's a really good lesson for all of us who are, you know, who, who have raised children and are raising children, right? This is the hope, the expectation, the anticipation that our children would grow to love God, to worship God. That when they are, you know, from the time they're in the womb, we pray for them. And when they're birthed, we dedicate them. And, then, and, and that's, you know, so she's bringing her child to the Lord. That's exactly, this is a, this is a dedication of the baby, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the Lord. That's why she's bringing him to the temple. So the story goes on. Talking about what they bring with them. Uh, let's see. A pair of turtle doves. Here we go. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons were offered. Now, in that day, this was not the sacrifice that was expected of them. But it was a sacrifice that was permitted of them to bring according to the law of Moses. It was an exception for them to be able to bring, you know, a cheaper sacrifice, basically, because of what they could afford. So Luke's gospel continuously reminds us that often in the kingdom of God and around, especially in that day, he mentions the poor so often. 
It talks about Jesus stopping to feed the poor and Jesus himself being poor. Jesus had a heart for the poor and he was oftentimes beloved by the, by the poor. He would feed the poor and care for the poor and encourage the poor and give the poor the promises of God's generosity and God's provision and God's, you know, the kingdom of God is going to be theirs to the least of them. You know, it's going to belong to the least of these. And Jesus' mother and father, this is mother and, and, and adopted father Joseph, though they are really devoted and, and devout and they're devoted to God and devout their faith, they just can't afford the typical sacrifice that most people would have brought in that day. And so they bring just a pigeon and a dove. So what does this teach? I mean, what does this teach? I mean, allow the scriptures to teach you all the way through as we, as we read these stories, as we read these events. One of the things I think this teaches me is this, that ultimately it's never the size of the gift that a person gives, but it's the heart of the worshiper and the degree of sacrifice that was, that was caused by them bringing this gift. And that's what's the most appropriate thing in the eyes of God. These are poor people. They can't offer a typical sacrifice. In fact, a pigeon or a turtle dove might have been a lot for them. And that's one of the reasons why you see Jesus looking at a woman who gives only three mites in the, in the offering plate after people have just dropped a bunch of dollars in there, a bunch of denarii in there. And he says she gave more. And it didn't make much sense to the disciples. Like, well, three mites isn't more than a bunch of denarii. But Jesus says it's the sacrifice. She gave more sacrifice. And that's what's important. So now we meet another man. There's a man who lived in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So this man, Simeon, he loves God, and the Holy Spirit has been, has been confirming in his heart that, like, this is a really special time, like, everything's coming together. That he's in this strategic moment in history that everything in God's providence and sovereign rule over all of history is sort of it's aligning for something very significant to happen. And he's sort of been waiting in expectancy. And all of this inaugurates the Son of God coming to the temple of God. And he knows this. So when Jesus and the temple come together, what we are seeing is the fulfillment of the old covenant and the inauguration of the New Covenant. This is why we have that separation between the Old Testament and the New Testament in our Bibles, because this is the moment that fulfills everything that the Old Testament was, and it's beginning a New Covenant. This is, a, this is why this is an incredible moment, just this little visit to the temple. I didn't want to gloss over this and, and look, because I want us to see the magnitude of this event, and Simeon knows it. Simeon, this man, he understands it. He understands that all the fulfillment of all the prophecy of the Old Testament, because of the revelation that the Holy Spirit has given to him, he is consciously aware of all of this is taking place right now. This is, a, this is sort of a miracle of the Holy Spirit happening in Simeon that we're told. He's aware of it. He's waiting eagerly with anticipation and expectation for the revelation of God. And it says, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. That this is Simeon knew this. So the, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Savior, the Deliverer, the long-expected one is the Christ. And Simeon had, had just had this revelation by the Holy Spirit that he would see him before he died. And so he came in the Spirit. And, and Luke, again, is just he just repeatedly t 
teaches us about the Holy Spirit and who the Holy Spirit is. He shows that Jesus was revealed by prophecy through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not just, he's not just a part of the Trinity that just happened to show up after Jesus left. He's showed up with us in that way. We, he multiplies himself in us, but, the, but God exists in three parts, in three persons and the Holy Spirit has always been at work, and he is at work here in Simeon's heart, in teaching Simeon and showing Simeon and revealing to him that he would indeed get to meet the Christ. And so Simeon has this revelation from the Holy Spirit, verse 27. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of law, he took him up in his arms, and he blessed God and said, and so here's Simeon, right, he's holding Jesus. He's holding Jesus in his arms. God has become a man, and Simeon is holding him in his arms. And he has this occasion where he just gets to hold him, right? The second member of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God. And he's holding him where? He's in the temple. They're in the temple. And so the story continues. Here's what he said. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your What's he call it? What's he say? Salvation. This child is looking at is my salvation, he says. That you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles. This is amazing that he's saying this, that a Jewish man is saying this, because that's us. Gentiles, that's all of us. He, this one that I am holding, he's saying, is a light for revelation to the Gentiles, which basically means all of the people. And for glory to your people Israel. So there it is, and he includes the Jews as well. So the question, does God love the Jews? Yes. Does God love the Gentiles? Yes. For whom does Jesus come as Savior? We learned this a few weeks ago, we repeated it again last week. For all the people. Every tribe, every language, every tongue, every nation, every culture, every background, every gender. In Revelation, we see that there are gathered around the throne of Jesus and they're all worshiping him as God. That's who Jesus came for. And his father and his mother marveled. Jesus' father and mother, Joseph and Mary, marveled at what was being said about him. And Simeon blessed them, the parents. Says so perhaps this, this, this priest is giving them a, a prayer, sort of a pastoral prayer. Maybe he placed a hand on Mary and prayed for her as his mother because she has an enormous job to raise this child who is God. I mean, he's still going to go through those you know, two year old, three year old, four year old, and the teen years and things like that. And so she's praying for him, you know, or he's praying for her and for his adopted father, Joseph, to be a good, a good mother and a good father to this boy that they would raise. So now the scripture goes on to tell us in verse 34, still walking through here. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed. So he has a destiny. He knows that. For the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. And so what he's, what he's saying here is that this boy is going to grow up to be a, a man who is the center of of an extraordinary controversy. He's going to be the center of an, an incredible conflict, incredible strife, incredible division in the world. But he is going to be the central event. This boy is going to be the central event on which all of human history hinges. 
And all that prophecy, so Simeon is right here prophesying this about Jesus, and all that came true. I mean, history, our history is divided into what? B.C., before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini, after the, the year of our Lord. Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. It's all centered around this man, Jesus. It goes on to say, moving right along, verse 36. There was also a prophetess there named Anna. So there's great respect here given to this woman as Luke includes her in, in his writing. And so she was obviously very respected there in the temple as well. It says that she is the daughter of, of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from, from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. So she spent a lot of her years as a widow. And she did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. So I love this because we have, basically we have a grandmother here. Does, you know, does grandma's prayers count? Absolutely. This is an 84-year-old woman here who's been praying day and night, day and night. She would devote herself to intercession that God's will would be done. God, may your will be done. May your kingdom come. And she got to see it. She got to see it. Verse 38. And coming up in that very hour, at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of, of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. So again, about a week's journey back home. And really, this is, I mean, aside from a couple other things, this is all we know about those early years of Jesus. This is all we really have. So verse 40 there, verse 40 where it says, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. That's really all we have. That's all we know of Jesus' early years. I mean, we know of this, of this dedication, this time when they brought him to the temple as a child, very young child, an infant child. And we know, you know the, the beginning of his public ministry, roughly at the age of 30. And that's really it. I mean, we have one instance where Jesus is in the temple as a 12 year old, as, as, as a really young kid. And he's, he's like kind of uh, debating with the scholars that are there. But these, these years between his toddlerhood to 30 years old or so are what the scholars will call the lost years of Jesus. And there are many cults who actually have surfaced over the years and their false teachers would kind of try to articulate what happened in those lost years of Jesus. And they'll try to fill them in and saying that like he went, you know, uh, with the Essenes, or he went east, or you know, guys like Deepak Chopra says that Jesus went to study with mystics and people of Eastern communities, and you know, studied magical arts of superstition and paganism. But really, none of those have any substantiation whatsoever. They're just all conjecture. Everybody, oh, the only thing you have is guess, guess. And my guess is that he learned how to be a good carpenter. My guess is that he learned how to grow up and be a good man by his mother and father, Mary and Joseph, in this small little town. And the reason that it's really, that's my best guess, even, even that's a guess, all we have is Scripture. And so we know that Scripture alone is God-breathed and profitable for our understanding, which means that everything we need to know is given to us right here. We don't need to know anything about it. I mean, it's probably pretty boring, to be quite honest. There probably wasn't much to write about. I mean, yeah, he grew up just like we all grow up. He began his ministry. Okay, let's talk about that because there's so much to write about that. But in terms of those younger years, it just really isn't much there. There really isn't much to, to talk about, right? From boyhood to adolescence, he grew in favor. I mean, that's enough right there. Just say he grew up in favor. People respected him. Respected him so much that, you know, that 
they call him rabbi. He wasn't. He didn't go through traditional um, Jewish custom. You know, he wasn't formally educated as a rabbi. But probably in his small town, there would have been a synagogue there. Perhaps maybe twenty people or so attended it. They would get together for prayers and readings. And it was obvious that he knew what he was talking about. These were simple, very rural folk, and nearly, you know, not nearly all. Probably all the women were illiterate, and most of the men probably were as well. And Jesus was among them. Jesus would attend, and somehow he was really well educated. They knew. Mary and Joseph did do a great job of raising Jesus. They taught him. They they loved him. They served him. They taught him the Old Testament scriptures. Probably they protected him. They gave him an adequate education. And we see this one glimpse where Jesus is at they're, at, they're visiting the temple in Jerusalem, and. On, you know, this is the only occasion that we see where he's in there talking with the scholars, and they're amazed at his knowledge. He grew in stature. We're going to see this later, but he grew in stature physically, wisdom, spiritually. He grew in favor to the degree that he was allowed to read the scriptures to them, and so he was called rabbi in the small town synagogue in Nazareth, in his hometown, where they called him rabbi. And so, what we have just read here in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 40, is this extraordinary event in human history that you may not have realized was very extraordinary, and hopefully you will know that it's extraordinary today. Jesus comes to the temple for the first time. And so what I want to do is just explain, in as much as I'm able to, some of the theological significance of that moment, of this moment after Christmas, when they bring Jesus to the temple. The temple, which in the days of Jesus would have been considered the house of God. You would enter through one gate and exit through another. There would be certain procedures for visiting, some ceremonial washing, some certain clothing you'd wear, places you could go. Not everyone could go to the same places. The temple, I showed you some pictures of of, of the temple, uh, the Herodian temple, which is what this one was several weeks ago. And so what I'd like to do is just kind of remind you, I don't know if I, if I did this before, but I'll, if, if not, I'll go back and we're going to do it today. Just remind you of five different functions of the temple, five things that the temple did or stood for and the purpose of it. And the first is this, it was a place between heaven and earth. So you remember we talked about they would ascend to the temple, but it was also spiritually this place that they would consider to be between heaven and earth particularly the Holy of Holies, which was right in the center of the temple. And it's our connection between heaven and earth. That was, that was sort of the, the, the way they, they saw it, because God is in heaven as the creator. We're here on earth as the created, but God's presence would dwell in the temple inside the Holy of Holies. Now, there was a curtain there that you could, no one could go inside that curtain. And so it was, a, it was covering his full glory. It was covering the Holy of Holies. And so it was a very sacred, it was the most sacred place that connected, sort of connected them in in a way to to God and and heaven. It connected humanity to God. That's one of the things that the temple, so that's one of the really theologically significant aspects of the temple is that it connected them to God. It It was a glimpse of heaven, of God, where God lived. So number two, this segues into number two, It was the place of God's presence. So God's presence being being held by his own gifting to us and his own graciousness in the Holy of Holies. He didn't have to do that, but he chose to He chose to allow them to create this place called the Holy of Holies. So literally, if you think about this, the only time in human history 
If you wanted to be near God, the only opportunity you had to do that was you had to go to the temple. You had to go into this place. And depending on your religious pedigree and your holiness and your you know the traditions and ritual purifications and things like that, you were allowed to get as close as possible to the Holy of Holies depending on, on who you were. And so people would make these journeys, like the one we talked about with Mary and Joseph today, to the temple. Why? Because they wanted to be close to God. They couldn't be close to God. That was God's presence was not known in the land except in that place, except where God chose to be. And so they would go and you would see, I mean, there were, there were stories of people just going and like leaning and getting to the, the closest wall that they could to the Holy of Holies and just leaning on that wall, leaning their forehead up against that wall and just praying prayers knowing that this might be their only shot at getting close to God. We don't have any idea how much we take for granted. I mean, in terms of the presence of God, we, in the, in the freedom of enjoying the constancy of His presence by the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant, the temple was the place, the only place of God's presence. And they would have to go there to meet Him. And so that's number three. Number three is, this is where God's people would come to meet with him. So imagine this. Do you want to meet with God? you want to pray to God? you want to hear from God? you want to sing to God? Then you had to go to the temple. Doing it anywhere else made no sense. Because God wouldn't be there. He wouldn't hear you. He wouldn't. That is the difference. And we actually still get a little confused about this today with our church buildings and structures, I think, assuming that those are the only places, or at least the primary places, where we meet with God. But it isn't that way anymore. It, 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 is, it used to be. That's what it used to be. Now, and it wasn't as much that God needed a house. God's the creator of heaven and earth. I mean, but that God created a place for people to come and meet with him. And so this was a meeting place. The temple was a meeting place where people would come from all over. It was a place for you to make, you know, if you lived in rural villages, you would make the journey, right? You, you know, people who were as poor as could be, they would still make the journey. And people who were wealthy would make the, they would make the trip there and they would stay there and they would, they would, they would spend time there. They, you know, some people perhaps would save their entire lives just to be able to make one journey to Jerusalem, one time, one opportunity to be in the presence of God. They had heard from their parents and their grandparents what it was like to be able to be there and to, you know, get there and wash in the pools and be adorned with white and to sense something of expectation as you ascend, as you walk up those stairs, the ascension, and you sang the songs, the psalms of ascent. Together they would worship with God's people and sing and, and, and just be together you know, you know, in, a, in, a, you know, in a larger gathering than they were ever used to. Right? Could be a once-in-a-lifetime event for some of these people. Number four. This was the place where sin was atoned for. So one of the things we know that happened in the temple, and the way, the way we know that sin was atoned for under the Old Covenant was through rituals. God set it up this way. And it was very symbolic of what is about to happen in the New Covenant, what we know as Jesus doing once and for all for us. But the ritual purification of coming to the temple, wearing white, offering of sacrifices was done for the remission of sins, the forgiveness of sins. And so that was one of the great expectations that they had when they would go and visit the temple. That was, one, that was their anticipation. 
that this weight and heaviness of their sin for an entire year would be on their shoulders, that they would come and there was an acknowledgement that before a holy and righteous and perfect God, as more you know, as revealed to them in more than 600 commandments in the books of the law, the Old Testament, those first five books of the, the Pentateuch, they knew that they were guilty. They knew they were condemned. They were sinners, both by nature and by choice. There was no escaping that. They recognized that. Just like King David recognized it, he knew, as he said in the Psalms, I am wicked from my mother's womb. They also echoed that sentiment. They would know that about David and his sinfulness and all the descendants of David. They would know that. And so they would go to the temple where they would have their sin atoned for. And the way this would happen is like this. The holiest man, at least by tradition, was, was the great high priest. And he would be there, and he had to be a descendant all the way back to the days of Moses uh, um, through numerous uh, bathings and, and cleansings. He would, he would have to go through, go through you know, as he was a priest, but he would also be a descendant of the Levite heritage, the, the heritage of Aaron. And every, you know, once a year, he would undergo a, you know, numerous cleansings and rituals, and he would wear very simple garments. He would confess his sins, and he would be permitted by God's grace one time of year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the Jews simply called it the day. He would enter in to that place that where no one was allowed to go, the Holy of Holies. And this is where they, I said they would often tie a rope on their, their foot just in case they'd look too long at the glory of God and dropped over dead. They would just pull them out. And he would sacrifice for the forgiveness of their sin, of the people. And this was a, this was a national event. And this was a place, this is a time when a lot of blood would be shed. This would not be a joyous time. Because you would actually see the destruction and the death that sin causes. Because you would bring um, an animal that you had perhaps raised or someone in that nation had raised. Many, many sacrifices were given in the temple. But this was the most important sacrifice of all. One of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the day. And on that day, as a national event, two goats would be brought. One would be a goat of substitute. And then there would also be one called the scapegoat. That's what people would call it today, the scapegoat. Best explain it. So two different goats. And the goat of substitute would be prayed over, and the sins of the people, the nation, would be confessed. And people would, all people would just confess their sins. And this was, a, like I said, a national event. And then that animal would be slaughtered, and its blood would be shed, and they would be able to see the blood running out the back of that temple. And that lamb would be slaughtered as a substitute, paying the penalty for sin, which is death. And this leads all the way back to the sacrifices in the Old Testament when God explained to Abraham how this would be set up, that sin equals death. Well, the other goat would be the scapegoat. So as sins were confessed, this goat would be sent away, and, and they would have to sometimes chase it away. History actually records that sometimes God's people would literally chase it away symbolizing that their sins were atoned for and that they're taken away. It's all done. It's all, it's, all, it's, all, it's all being taken care of. And this is all, why is this weird stuff happening? Because it's all leading up to the coming of Jesus. Wouldn't have been weird to them. It's just been normal. To us, we look back on it, we're like, this is really weird. Yeah, but you know what? It's pretty weird also that we get to live because Jesus died. And so here we are. Mary, who's holding this child, Jesus, tenderly in her hands, this poor peasant girl from the village of Nazareth. You just imagine as she's ascending the steps of the temple, 
wearing the white that they're wearing there as they go, knowing that this is the sacrifice that her son will ultimately die to pay for her sin. She's carrying in her hands the fulfillment of the entire sacrificial system. The entire day of atonement, everything that takes place on that the day, the entire purpose behind the nation of Israel, the construction of that entire temple, the consideration of all the priests and all the sacrifices that are offered, everything that God created in the Old Testament for them to do, this little peasant woman is holding a child that would fulfill all of that, and that's why we don't ever do it again. This is a magnificent, historic, absolutely unprecedented, unparalleled event. All of this culminates, this whole sacrificial system culminates in Jesus. And so the last one, number five, in terms of functions of the temple. The function of the temple, one of the great functions of the temple is that it would be a place, a central place for the life and faith and worship of God's people. And so God's people, you know, we know that they were surrounded by enemies on every side. We know that. They're frequently destroyed and attacked. You can read all about that in the Old Testament. How many, how often they would just get you know, attacked and destroyed and captured. And, and many were martyred and murdered. Some of them lived in rural villages. But they would all come to this place, the temple. And there, they'd be gathered together as God's people. It'd be like, this is our place. He is our God. And we're his people. And this is our place. I mean, it, it was community. I mean, it's why, I think, you know, it's why community matters to us. It's why fellowship matters. It's why we still have the church. I mean, being with God's people matters. When you meet someone who's a Christian, like, like if you didn't know them before, but then as you're talking to them, you kind of get the sense and you just ask them, right? You find out they're a Christian, there's an immediate sort of connection, right? Like, almost like this is a family member. It's a long lost woman, someone I don't even know, but now it's like together. So it was the sort of the center of their life. It was the center of their faith and certainly the center of their worship as we talked about. So let's go back again to Mary carrying Jesus in her arms up the steps of the temple. She's ascending physically. She's ascending. She's spiritually singing the Psalms of Ascent and celebrating. So she's fulfilling Malachi. She's fulfilling the prophet prophecy, the Old Testament prophecy of coming to the temple. Jesus comes to the temple. Jesus. She's bringing Jesus to that place. And we're going to see a little later. As I mentioned earlier, there was a, you know, later on in, in next week's readings, Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. As a young boy, Jesus was in the temple and he was debating with the scholars, right? And we know he was pretty sharp theologically. Jesus was a devoted student of the scripture. And while he was there, like his parents lost track of him while they were in the temple. I'm sure Mary was probably absolutely terrified. As, many, you know, as any mother, as you can imagine, would be. They go to Jerusalem, a town of 100,000 or so people. You're from a small town of 100 where the oversight procedures are a little different, right? In those rural towns as they are when you go to a big city. Your son is God and you lost him. <laughs> That's a bad day. You're, she's frantic. Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? You know, they're trying to backtrack and find him. What do we do? Where did Jesus go? He was traveling with us. I'm sure he was with the caravan. What on earth happened to Jesus? So Jesus' mother and adopted father, they felt that panic, that, that heart, increased heart rate of losing their son. They brought him into the big city temple as a young man. He's just a teenager, perhaps. And where is he? He's in the, right in the thick of it, debating and 
and dialoguing with the scholars. They thought they lost him. And that's the second time that Luke records Jesus going to the temple. When they find him, they ask, hey, where, where were you? <laughs> and I love what Jesus' answer is. He says, well, yeah, I was in my father's house. See, for others, for everybody else there, this was a big, magnificent temple, Herod's temple. For Jesus, it's just dad's house. So the act of bringing this baby, to the, the baby Jesus, to the temple was a much different kind of dedication than any other person who might have been making this pilgrimage and thinking about the sacrifice of the scapegoat and the sacrificial goat. Yet it was the same for Mary. And whether Mary fully comprehended the foreshadowing and the magnitude of this event or not, it was all very, very real. She carried into the temple the child who would one day pay the sacrifice, pay the, 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 the required price and provide the sacrifice once for all. He would fulfill everything, every need that the temple had. Jesus would fulfill it. And so let's, let's go ahead and think about that now as we get ready to close. Let's fast forward 33 years. Jesus would ultimately be murdered, crucified, actually not very far from that place, that temple where they were where they were standing in that moment, just outside the city of Jerusalem, a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. It was a place where crucifixions were done. And it was just outside the city up on a hill along a busy street on a high invisible place because they wanted people to see as people would die in one of the most excruciating and painful ways to die, tortured on a Roman cross. And so what we hear, what we read later in the Gospels is that when Jesus died, he cried out in this victorious, triumphant way, this, 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 this phrase, it is finished. Tetelestai is what he said. It is accomplished. It is paid in full. It is finished. All the different ways that, that, that those words can be translated. And when he did that, when he yelled that, something happened inside the temple. You see, something happened inside the temple that echoed what was happening out there at the cross. And at that very moment, we know from the writings of the Gospels that the voice of Jesus from the cross, something that came from his voice was echoed right there in the center of that place, in the Holy of Holies. Do you remember what happened in the temple? What happened? The curtain was torn. That curtain that separated the presence of God, the glory of God from the people. No one could go beyond that curtain. When Jesus cried, it is finished from the cross, that curtain was torn in two. And it was torn from top to bottom. Again, God comes to us. We don't ascend. He comes to us. He descends as the God-man, Jesus Christ. And on the cross, he accomplished all that was happening in the temple. On the cross, he was able to say, all that is finished. It's no more. And now his presence is forever with us. He has come to be with his people. And so Jesus is our temple. You see, in 70 AD, I talked about this before, what happened. Simple, 
exactly what Jesus said. He said, no stone, not one stone will be left on another. The temple, the need for a temple is going away. So this was foreshadowing. This was expectation. This was anticipation. And now it's all been fulfilled. It's all, everything that was happening in the temple is superseded by this event of Jesus on the cross. And the temple was destroyed, just like Jesus said it would be. And it's been destroyed now for almost two millennia. Why? Because we have no need for it. It served its purpose. It was great while it was there. For hundreds of years, people used it to prepare for the coming of Jesus. Once he came and said, it's done, it's finished, the purpose was fulfilled. No need, no longer go to the temple. Why don't we ever go to the temple anymore? Here's why. Jesus is our temple. What's now the place between heaven and earth? It's Jesus. Where, where, where was God's presence on earth? In Jesus. Where do we go to meet with God? We go to Jesus. You see, there's one mediator between us and God. It's, and it's, it's the God who became a man, the man Jesus Christ. And that's where sin is atoned for as well. It's in Jesus. So where now is the center of all of our life and faith and worship and all of our community? It's in Jesus. It's not in any man-made buildings. It's not in any place it's not in any other event. It's just simply in Jesus. He's our temple. So as I close, I actually want to share with you one other place where something is said about the temple. It's not one other place, but it's, it's one other idea about the temple. Something that the Apostle Paul later said that is interesting he was pointing this out to the Christians in the early church because they were maybe confused a little bit about the temple. And in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul says this, Do you not know? So if you look that up, I mean, you don't look that up. I, I just kind of threw that on. But if you have that in front of you, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, here's what he says. And see if you can guess what he's about to say. Do you not know that you, so literally, you and 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 you you are what God's what do you suppose it says temple so as you go about your daily life just always remember this that through the grace of God and the death and resurrection of Jesus our high priest our temple our sacrifice we, by the grace of God, become the temple of God. How? The Holy Spirit takes up residence in the sons and daughters of the Father. We are children of God, and He makes us the Holy of Holies. That's what He does. He, he God, chooses to dwell inside of us. Where did God dwell in history? In the temple. Where does He dwell now? In you. Therefore, Paul says, you are now the temple of God. He has come to us. So we don't need to go to a holy place, but through the Holy Spirit, we could be that holy place. That's who we can be. And that's why the Bible says that all Christians are a priesthood of believers, that our whole life is about ministry, that we're all priests in Christ. You're all temples in Christ. So Paul says, here's everything Paul says in those two verses. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you 
are that temple. It's amazing. I mean, it, looking, looking at what Jesus has done, as Jesus was adopted by Mary and Joseph, brought to the temple, when he was born by Mary, adopted by Joseph, brought to the temple, and it would be through Jesus that we would be adopted by God, our Father, that we would be the family of God, that we would receive all the benefits and all the blessings, that we'd receive all of the fulfillment and all of the expectation and all of that prophetic expectation, anticipation of all the scriptures in the Old Testament, that God would come and he would identify with us, that he would die for us, that he would rise and ascend to prepare a place for us, and then that together we would rise one day to be with Jesus and enjoy all the blessings that he came to accomplish on our behalf. It's just an absolutely incredible thing. It was an absolute, absolutely incredible moment in history that I want us to feel the weight of and know the full extent of. Let's pray. Well, Father, we, um, we thank you for being exactly what, what we needed. And I thank you, Lord, that you've given us the scriptures and the history of what all the temple was accomplishing in that day so that we would know and be able to, to create the parallel of just the, the great significance of Jesus' death and his resurrection and why we focus so much attention on Jesus. Because, Lord, it's probably weird to consider the fact that we focus so much attention on a death on the cross and that we talk about it being a sacrifice and it had to be bloodshed and we get ready to take communion right now and in communion we are focusing on drinking a, a little cup of juice that represents blood and, and eating a wafer that represents the body of Christ and why does that take why does that take place why do we do that ritual here every Sunday well Father so we can be reminded that our temple was Jesus on that cross. And every single day now, you dwell in us. Thankful that, we're thankful, God, that you have made your home in us. So right now, we sing of the name of Jesus. And we go out from here today, the name of Jesus on our hearts, because that is our way to you.